Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. And at that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, forgive my sniffles this morning. I have some spring allergies that are coming up. But I am just so glad that we can be together this week. And that's true for you on the live stream. I'm glad that we have that resource so that if you are traveling for Memorial Day weekend, you're able to join us in worship this morning, too. So many of us came to church this morning with aching hearts after all of the, the news tragedies that we've experienced the last few weeks. I am here this morning with an aching heart. We are experiencing tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in our world, and it's too much. On top of that, we're all processing in different ways. Some of us are experiencing some grief. Some of us are experiencing some anger. Some of us are just exhausted. Some of us are feeling uncomfortably numb, as one high rocker put it. We don't know what to say with, to our kids. We don't know how to move our society forward. So this morning, before we go into solutions as a church, we're just going to start by lingering in some lament. We'll move into hope and an invitation this morning too, but first, lament. I had a different sermon planned a few days ago, but I thought we need to spend some time just in prayer and in lament. I'm not going to start my sermon with a joke or a metaphor or a story like I typically like to. I just want you to know that I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you are turning to God with me this morning. And before we go into our time of silence, I just wanted to give you a few notes about what to expect from our sermon this morning. I'm not going to spend some time talking about statistics. I'm not going to go into details about what has happened the last few weeks. I'll mention some of those things, but not everyone is ready to be confronted with those details right now. But we are going to take a break from our Acts sermon series. We're going to talk about grief and pain and hope. But I want us to be gentle with ourselves and with each other today as we continue to process some difficult things. 
If any of it feels like it's too much for you and you need a minute to yourself, we have opened the parlor, which is in the room over here to your left. Um, I won't be offended if you step out. And we want to keep that space just quiet. So if you go in there and there's other people in there, I would encourage you to just nod at them and then let them have their space as well. I put some Bibles, some adult coloring pages in there if you like to process through our work. For some of us, having something tactile in our hands as we process and listen is grounding. So we have a basket of fidget toys in the back at the table that says connect. And you're welcome to grab one of those in the, in the moment of silence in a few minutes if that would be helpful for you. We are all in a different space this morning about what we need. Some of us are feeling a lot of grief and we need to just stay there for a little bit. Some of us are ready to move into some action for change in our country and in our world. And so this morning and over email later, I'll offer some suggestions for both. I'll offer some suggestions for how to engage in lament and some resources to take a next step towards action if you're ready for that. Wherever you are, whatever you brought in today, this morning, be present to it. Be gentle with yourself. Invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you in that place, even in that exhaustion or rage or fear or grief or numbness. Whatever you brought in, God is there with you. After the service, a few of the other pastors and I are going to be in the parlor. Pastor Jean will be helping with the craft for those who want to do that, the craft time. But if you'd like to just share how you're doing and have some space to pray, a few of us will be in the parlor to meet with anyone who would like to. So right now, let's just take a minute, close our eyes, Let's be quiet. Grab a toy in the back if you need one. Just take a second to notice how you're feeling. What did you bring in with you this morning? And offer your mind and your heart to Jesus today. I'll open us with prayer in a minute. Lord God, we come in like Susan and Pastor Jean said with so many different feelings and emotions sorrows, sadness, some of us hope this morning. And we know that you have felt everything that we are feeling. And so we offer those feelings to you right now. We pray that you would speak to us in those place, places. We ask for a fresh invitation to be part of your story this morning, that you would lead us where you want us to go. We love you, we trust you, and we worship you through this time. Amen. Well, there are no words for cultural moments like the one that we find ourselves in. I am trained and paid to write and speak words, and I didn't have any good ones this week. And when that happens, I like to turn to the Psalms, or I meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the garden is where God met me this week. I have this painting of the Garden of Gethsemane hanging in my office so that I can look, for it, look at it anytime I need to meet Jesus there. The garden is a very special moment in scripture. So if you brought your Bibles, I would invite you to open up with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We'll start at verse 32, the passage that Andrew read for us a few minutes ago. The garden of Gethsemane. With one exception, the crucifixion, there is no other image that is so reproduced and written about in Christian art and literature than as a scene in the garden of Gethsemane. This scene shows us Jesus at his most raw and unadorned. This is Jesus at his most human. When the story opens, we are in the final hours of Jesus' life. He's just had his final meal with his friends. He's just about to be betrayed and go to the cross. 
And right before he's arrested and killed, he goes to the garden to pray. And our passage says this. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. That word that we translate as deeply distressed, it's a Greek word, adamonin, adamonin. And that word doesn't really have a good English translation, but it's a kind of longing feeling. It's a melancholic yearning. It's a feeling of being away from your home and not knowing if you're ever going to get back there again. It it actually comes from the word homesick. And it has this this hopelessness attached to it. It is a hopeless, grief-stricken longing for something better. Homesick. That's how Jesus was feeling in the garden. And in the Greek, there's a second word for how Jesus was feeling. The first is adamone, and the second word is the word that we translate in English as troubled, but it might be better translated as awestruck. It was this powerful feeling of being in the presence of glory, in the presence of something divine. This word is only used in two other scenes in the New Testament, and both of them are in this gospel. The first is just after the transfiguration, when Jesus shows himself as truly divine, and the crowds stand there, and they're awestruck at who he is. And the second is when the angels tell the women that Jesus has been risen from the dead. In both the other circumstances that this word is used, it's used to talk about an encounter with the divine. It's, it's this feeling of being awestruck, homesick, and awestruck. That's where we meet Jesus in the garden. In this scene, Jesus is experiencing this awe-inspiring divine moment that we can never fully grasp or understand. In a way, this scene is profoundly sacred, and it's foreign to us. It's a supernatural struggle that we can never fully understand. This garden is holy ground. And at the same time, the emotions that Jesus felt in the garden were common to every human who has ever lived. Now, we may not fully understand the agricultural metaphors that Jesus used in his parables. We may not know what it feels like to heal a blind man with our own spit. We may not get the divine struggle that he faced as he looked at the cross square in the eye, knowing that it would take his life. But we get homesickness. Now, for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to put some artwork behind me on the screen. There are artists all over the world who have painted this garden scene, but they've they've painted Jesus in their own ethnicities. Because in some mysterious way, this part, this part of Jesus' story is so foreign to us. And at the same time, we can see ourselves in it. These emotions, we can feel with him. This pain, we can identify. In this scene, Jesus is fully God. And at the same time, Jesus is every one of us. Ademonin, a melancholic longing, a homesickness for a better world. So many of us, we know this feeling, right? We've faced an incredible personal loss, or maybe we anticipate facing one. We've had a miscarriage, a marriage crisis, a medical issue, some other mess in our lives. Maybe it was a financial setback, a relationship that blew up, a job loss, a betrayal, a death. Maybe we're just feeling actually homesick. We're longing for a place and a people who truly know us, who will choose us. Or maybe the adamonin that we feel comes from looking around at all of the evil that we see in our world, 
and longing for something different, something better. Something better than pervasive abuse in the SBC. Something better than mass shootings in grocery stores and elementary schools. Something better than a Russian invasion in Ukraine. Something better than thousands of lives lost to war that we remember and honor this weekend. In our world right now, we feel adimonate. The garden may have been holy ground, but at the same time, it was still just ground. It was still just dirt. The garden was made from the same kind of dust that we came from and will return to, and so was Jesus. Now, at this point in the story, the disciples haven't abandoned him yet. He isn't facing the cross yet. The garden of Gethsemane wasn't this grand thing. It was quiet. It was intimate. It was the moment before the moments, the calm before the storm. And in that moment, Jesus felt far from home. The word Gethsemane literally means oil press. It was named after an oil press. So if you think about how oil is made, when farmers are pressing oil, they put a, or at least in ancient times, they would put a big stone and roll it over the olives so that the seeds could be crushed and the olives would roll out, or the oil would flow out. So literally, the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a place of crushing. And as soon as Jesus arrives there, he collapses to the ground, and he tells his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's engulfed in grief to the point of death. Here in the garden, we see Jesus, a man so fully divine that he could take on all the consequences of all the sins of all the world and win. But before he does any of that, he cries out before God about how wrong this all is. He laments like the psalmist. He pleads out of the fullness of his humanity. He demands something else. And he starts to pray. And I want to take a few minutes and unpack this short prayer that Jesus prayed because it has powerful implications for the Christian life. So he starts his prayer with the word Abba. Abba. So if you've been in the church a while, you might have heard that word Abba was a word for father in the language that Jesus spoke. But it wasn't just a, a word that children used for their fathers, although it would have been. Adult children would also call their fathers Abba. Sometimes students would call their teachers Abba, but however it was used, whenever it was used, it carried this kind of intimacy and affection. I heard about a study a few years ago where a bunch of linguists asked the question, if we were to go back in time millions of years and try to say an English word to people who lived millions of years ago and didn't speak English, is there a word that we could say that they would understand, that they would know what we were talking about? And it turns out that there are likely two words that they would understand. They would understand the word mama and dada. The words that we can all understand are the two words that describe the first relationship that we can comprehend, and it's an intimate relationship. Jesus starts his prayer with one of those intimate universal words, Abba, Papa, Father. Now here's the thing. When we suffer, when we're struggling, one of our primary temptations is to doubt the love of God. There was a Christian leader in the last century from South Africa named Andrew Murray, and he said, the power of prayer depends almost entirely upon our appreciation of who it is with whom we speak. The power of prayer depends almost entirely upon our appreciation of who it is with whom we speak. When we feel this way, 
the way that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane, this homesickness and longing, like the weight of the world could crush us, we have this gift in Jesus' prayer, Abba. Because with one word, Jesus declares both the super and the natural. This is a holy, divine God meeting us right where we are. It's an invitation. It's a sacred moment to meet with our maker. And at the same time, that word Abba, it claims this kind of intimate relationship with the God who would meet us at our basest realities, in the mess of our gardens, who would meet us in the dirt and in our ademonen. And because it's where we can talk to God, we can claim it all, all that we're feeling as holy ground. Abba. And then Jesus goes on to say, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. What's the cup? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, right before Jesus goes in the garden to pray, he's had dinner with his disciples and they were celebrating Passover. And Passover is a Jewish feast that celebrates when God freed the Israelites from the Egyptians. And during the Last Supper, they drink three cups of wine. Each of the cups symbolized something. I will free you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. But traditionally, there are four cups that are supposed to be drunk at Passover. Jesus never drinks the fourth cup during the Last Supper, but he does drink it later. Because a little while later on the cross, people fill a sponge with wine and they lift it up to Jesus to drink. It's the fourth cup. And that one cup symbolizes something too. It symbolizes that completion. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. But Jesus does that on the cross. This is not an easy cup to drink. And here Jesus tells God honestly how he feels about it. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Now sometimes translations soften this up a bit. We act like Jesus was begging on his knees, but in this prayer Jesus wasn't begging. Jesus was directing. This wasn't a gentle, passive, oh, please help me prayer. It's an imperative. It's a command. Jesus is direct with God about what he wants. In his prayer, Jesus is honest about his suffering. He's honest about his fear. He's speaking his heart to the only one who can truly understand. This is an honest prayer from a hurting person. It's a dark, desperate moment. And it isn't the only one like it in scripture. All over the Bible, we see prayers like this prayer that Jesus prayed. The Bible is very real about raw human emotion, about injustice and evil and rage. Every human emotion can be found in its pages. Hatred, terror, despair, overwhelming sorrow, homesickness, adimonen. Somewhere between half and two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? These are real prayers. They're desperate prayers and they're biblical prayers. People grieving and outpouring their anguish in times of suffering and torment. They're shaking their fists at God. They're wrestling with God. They're questioning God. They're doubting God. And so in the moments when we find ourselves struggling, when we find ourselves struggling with the weight of what's happening in the world, we will find that Jesus is right there too. And it's interesting, when Jesus prays this prayer, he's actually praying his own prayer. He's praying the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, the prayer that we prayed earlier, the Lord's Prayer. So let's put the Lord's Prayer back on the screen. It says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So now let's put the Gethsemane prayer next to it. Instead of our Father, it says, Abba Father. Instead of who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, he says, everything is possible for you. Instead of your will be done, he says, not my will, but yours. But when he's supposed to pray, your kingdom come, he prays the opposite. He says, take this cup from me. Your kingdom may be this cup, but I don't want it. I want another way. Jesus violates his own prayer in this moment. It is Jesus at his most human. Jesus at his most like us. So if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever felt the way that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane, where, whether it's now or it's in the past or it's in the future, if you've ever felt hopeless or powerless and you're longing for something else, something different, something better, if you've ever felt lonesome or longing or homesick, if you have felt name, you are not alone. And what you are also not is unspiritual. Sometimes moments like these are when we pray our most profound prayers. Dark emotions like that, they don't keep us from God. They can make us more honest, and they can lead us into intimacy with our Abba. I remember about 10 years ago, I was meeting with my spiritual director, who, uh, whose name is Sue, and she's someone I meet with who holds space for me to process what God is telling me in my life, and she prays with me and gives me feedback on it. And it was a time in my life when I was just hurting and I was confused and I was doubting the love of God. And I remember trying to explain myself, but my tongue was tied and my brain was hazy and I just couldn't, couldn't really get it out. I thought subconsciously at the time that Christians were supposed to stuff our fear behind blind faith, to whitewash our worries behind Christianese, to keep our heads down, to keep our questions tucked away. And as I clung to that belief, I found that I didn't have anything left to say to God. So I was just quiet. And Sue sat with me in my silence. And eventually she said, so when you're honest, what do you want to pray? And I froze. I put my head down. And I said, it isn't pretty. And she said, well, then pray that. God can handle that. Sometimes our most honest prayer is, God, make this go away. Get us out of here. And that, that can feel really unspiritual sometimes, to yell and curse and rail at God or at the way the world is. But when we look at the pattern of the Bible, this kind of prayer can be a profound act of faith. Because at its basis level, we are going to God instead of away from God with who we really are. We're showing God our full selves. We're showing God naked and not ashamed. And it's the kind of intimate relationship that God always wanted with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the kind of relationship that God had with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the kind of intimate relationship that God invites us into in whatever gardens we find ourselves in. But Jesus doesn't end his prayer there. There's a yet. A yet. He's sweating with blood with effort, and he says, yet. Not my will, but your will be done. The fall of humanity happened in another garden when Adam and Eve said to God, not what you will, what I will. And they ate the fruit that they were commanded not to eat. And with that sin and sickness and suffering and shame, it entered the world. It was suddenly created and became possible. Things that are not possible in the full presence of God became possible in the world. 
And so in this moment, Jesus comes into another garden and he's faced with a choice. Do I save myself or do I save the world? And he prays the, op the opposite of what Adam and Eve did, not my will, but what you will. And with these words, he reverses the curse. This is a prayer ultimately of relinquishment, of trust, of surrender. He names his emotions. He calls them what they are. But instead of getting stuck there, he looks to the God that he's shouting at and he chooses love. He remembers what God is like. He remembers the bigger picture. He remembers what God is accomplishing through the cross. He names his feelings honestly. He complains about it angrily. And then he clings to the promises that he knows are true about God. Jesus does what he knows he must, even as his heart is beating and his hands are shaking. And God's no to Jesus' prayer, it becomes the greatest answered prayer in all of history. Even when we don't understand, even when we can't see to the end of the story, we can trust in the God that we're praying to. In the end, this kind of honest prayer, it can actually start healing. As humans, our minds are constantly trying to make sense of the world. So going to God with the parts that don't make sense, the parts that are painful, the parts that are hurtful or confusing, it actually helps us to organize and orient our, our focus of our life. It anchors us in a Christ who doesn't change. Because as long as I keep hold of God, I know that there is hope in the story. I might still be afraid, I might still be angry, but I'm no longer alone in that. I might still be a garden, but now the garden is holy ground. Now there's been a lot of conversation this week around those, the phrase thoughts and prayers. The insincerity of sending prayers to the families of victims, but not doing anything to enact change. And I agree with a lot of those sentiments and those feelings. We can't just pray. We have to act. But also we can't just act. We also have to pray. Prayer connects us to the heart of God. It leads us toward compassion. It sparks insight and strength and ideas. It takes us out of ourselves. It unifies us. It reminds us of the bigger picture and gives us energy to keep going. It leads us and guides us and directs us towards Christ and not our own individual agendas. But only when it's sincere, when it's honest, and when it's moving us forward. And the text doesn't say this, but I imagine that Jesus' pain and anger at all of the evil and sin and shame in the world, I imagine that that fueled him to keep going that night, to put a stop to it. Jesus couldn't let evil win in the world, so he took all of the sins and all of the shame and all, of all of the world, and he hung them on the cross to die, and he said, it is finished. That is finished. That doesn't win. And then three days later, he rose again, and he invited all who would follow him to put sin to death with him in themselves and in the community so that we could live into the truth and the hope of the resurrected life instead. With his death, he conquered death once and for all. This is finished now. And yet, there is still work to be done until he comes back. And he invites his followers to join him in that work. I read a story this week that during the height of the civil rights era, Dr. Martin Luther King led a march from Selma to Montgomery. Some of you might remember that. And one of the people who participated in that march was uh, Rabbi A.J. Heschel. 
And when Rabbi A.J. Heschel returned from Selma, someone asked him, Rabbi, did you have a lot of time to pray when you were in Selma? And Rabbi Heschel responded, I prayed with my feet. I prayed with my feet. So what was his point? That his marching, his protesting, his speaking out for civil rights, it was part of how he prayed. Now, of course, traditional prayer is important. Because of Jesus, we are invited to approach the throne of grace with confidence, to name how we're doing, to ask for change in the world, to ask for changed hearts. But we are also invited, scripturally, to go out and pray with our feet. Friends, God's spirit is alive in us. And because of that, we can be confident that evil does not win. So we can stand up to abuse, to greed, to violence in the world with confidence. We can stand up to sin and shame with confidence. And we can say in the name of Jesus, this is finished. We can pray with our feet. And we can pray with everything that we have. With our computers, with our pens, with our wallets, with our protests, with our phone calls, with our votes. Whatever we have in our life, we can pray with it. Now, sometimes pastors are reluctant to say things like that from the pulpit because it sounds like we're being political. But here's the thing. Jesus was political. Jesus lived within systems that consistently abused their power, so he overturned tables. He advocated fearlessly through actions for the poor, for widows, for orphans, for children. He gets up and he demands change. Jesus prays with all of his heart in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he prays with his feet all the way to Golgotha. And by his power and life alive in us, we can too. Right now, it can be easy to feel hopeless. But the truth of the resurrection holds even in this. And as people who put our hope in the resurrected life of Jesus, we dare to believe in a world made right and in bodies made new and made whole again. The prophet Micah describes the vision of what's to come. He writes, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one, no one will make them afraid. No more war. No more weapons. Everyone will have enough to eat, and no one will make them afraid. Can you imagine that world? God has called us to be resurrection people and to bring the truth and the hope of that future world into our present. Now, I am not an expert on how to solve all the problems of the world right now. They are too great for me. But I do follow Jesus. And I know that following him means meeting him in prayer in the garden and then going with him all the way to the cross. It means putting sin and shame to death with him in ourselves first and then in the world around us. And to join him in healing a broken world. But let's not forget that the healing of what's broken, it takes time and patience. It's a change that's incremental, and sometimes it's quiet, but without a doubt, it's happening. Church, look around this room. 
When I think about this room that we are worshiping in, this place is sacred to me. Because people have been following Christ in this room for hundreds of years, and I'm awestruck when I think about the cultural moments that they found themselves in. People who worshiped where you're sitting lived through civil wars, civil rights, world wars, women's suffrage, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Great Depression. And we have stories up in our archives of the ways that our church fought for biblical justice, how they stood up for the oppressed and the marginalized, how they prayed and they preached, and how they fed and they clothed. Let's continue that story. Hopelessness is easy. Despair is easy. But we can commit to the discipline of hope. And we can keep following Jesus into the hard places of the world and see resurrection there too. So what do we do with all of this? Some of you need to spend a little more time in the garden right now. You need to linger on lament. You need to be honest. You need to grieve. You need to rail. You need to demand a different world. Jesus will meet you in that place. He'll hold you there. He'll lament with you there. He'll cry with you. Stay there as long as you need. You are right where you need to be, and you are doing enough. Others of you are in a different position. You're in a different position to do something active. You're ready to fight for a world where violence and tragedy no longer exist. And Jesus is right there with you. He'll march with you. He'll boycott with you. He'll make phone calls with you. But if you're in that place, a few things to remember. First, we have to stay rooted in prayer. Prayer is what grounds us in the power of the Holy Spirit and not our own ideas. Prayer is what fuels us in love. And we can only see lasting healing in the world when we are relying on God's energy alive and at work in us, giving us wisdom and compassion to do the work. The problems are too great for us as humans to tackle them alone and without a power beyond ourselves. Second, you cannot take on every cause. Our church cannot take on every cause. Only God can carry the weight of the world. So if you feel compelled and invited by God to get involved somewhere and start to work for lasting change, I would encourage you to discern with God and with the community one or two areas where you can invest your time and your energy. Discern with God where your unique heart and experience and gifts compel you to serve. And then get really educated on that one thing. If you want to see an end to gun violence or racism, commit to learning deeply about that. If your heart breaks for those struggling with mental health or addiction or survivors of abuse, learn about how to get involved there. All of that work, all of that work is part of the heart of God and part of reconciling all things to Christ. So spend some time in prayer and ask God how you can play a role in God's story. And be patient. You are not the entire body of Christ. And you may not see all these problems solved in your lifetime. But as a follower of Christ, we all have a part to play. Third, remember, remember, we preached about this a few weeks ago, remember to rest and to, pray, to play in the midst of it. Our society has a lot of wrong in it right now, but it also has a lot of good in it. And the wrong is not the whole story, and it's not the last word. We have Jesus. We have Jesus. And because of him, we have hope. We have joy. We live in a world that God called good when God, God created it, and it is still a beautiful world. So let's make sure that in the midst of all the hard headlines, we also take a step back 
We turn off the news sometimes, and we meditate on God's truths and hope instead. I've shared before, but taking just a five-minute dance break every day, it helps our bodies work through chronic trauma. And our society has been through a lot of chronic trauma. But dancing tells your brain that you're safe. So it starts to help your body heal when you're in that place, especially when the trauma has compounded. So read the books, make the phone calls, and then take a dance break. That counts as praying with your feet too. If you're on our mailing list, you'll have some resources in your inbox, probably do right now because I can preach and write emails at the exact same time. So if you check your email, you have some resources in your inbox, both to guide you in lamenting prayer and to take some action in the name of Christ if you are ready to take some steps and that's not gonna overwhelm you in this moment. So let's pray with both our hearts and our feet. So I'd like to invite the band to come back up and as they're coming up, I'll close with a blessing and adapted prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. Friends, this is ancient wisdom and it's the same invitation that we get from Christ. Let's pray. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring healing and kindness to all the world. Amen.